This is Gurus, the story of acting. I'm Jeff Zinn. As I go deeper into it, I find that some elements of this story beg to be told, not from start to finish, but from the middle out. In an earlier episode, I spoke about the collision on West 44th Street that occurred in 1935, when both Michael Chekhov and the group theater were on Broadway in dueling productions. In that highly charged moment, the group was at its height, about midway through their 10-year lifespan. Michael Chekhov was also midway through his much longer and rather tortured journey from promising young star at the MAT to his somewhat diminished final days in Hollywood, playing minor parts and coaching movie stars. What I want to do now is rewind to the beginning of Chekhov's journey, how that journey somehow led to Broadway, then follow him back across the Atlantic to England, where he landed flush with a new job and the promise of new opportunities, only to run headlong into the unopposable force of a different vision of a theater of the future, the one authored by the French gurus Jacques Coupeau and Michel Saint-Denis. Why spend so much time following the path and telling the story of a guru whose influence has mostly faded? One reason is that my own early theater training was with someone who was part of the Chekhov experiment in the 30s and 40s. Ronald Bennett became a member of the Michael Chekhov players when they moved from Dartington Hall to Ridgefield, Connecticut in 1940. Frankly, that's what sparked my interest in this guru saga. But even though the Capot-Saint-Michel method hybrid techniques won out in the end, the Michael Chekhov technique did not disappear. Today, there exists a veritable industry of Chekhov-branded schools, coaches, and training programs, and a thriving subculture of Michael Chekhov devotees, not to mention Misha, the Michael Chekhov Association, that hosts seminars and conferences whose aim is to keep the word alive. The reason Michael Chekhov technique survives today may have something to do with his focus on the physical as it connected to the internal. Stanislavski had divided the two overriding modalities of his system into inner and outer. You might say that this question, how to synthesize the inner and the outer, the intellectual and the emotional, sense and sensibility in an authentic and believable way, has been the central problem to be solved for all the approaches. It's the theatrical equivalent of the quest for a unified field theory. Chekhov was onto something with his notion of psychological gesture. Decades later, the American Methodists, starting with the group and then at the studio, the actor's studio, would drill down deep for the emotional truth. They were very successful in mining that element. But there was always a sense from the Methodists that they lacked in the areas of text and style and even physicality. That may have been what prompted Stella Adler to beseech Chekhov to come to the group to teach us. Putting realism and modern plays to the side, Jacques Coupeau took on the classical repertoire, aiming for a new way to truthfully depict characters who had been encased in layers of style and convention. 
So let's go back to the beginning of the Michael Chekhov story, because it leads us to the story of Coupeau and Bing and Saint-Denis. At the Moscow Art Theater, Michael Chekhov had risen from juvenile to leading man to blazing star of the company. Stanislavski called him his most gifted student and put him in charge of one of the important studios, where he acted, directed, and began to develop his own variant of the system. He was recruited into the first studio, Stanislavski's experimental company within a company, that also included Vaktangov and Richard Boleslavsky. When the first studio toured Europe in the early 20s with Strindberg's Eric XIV, his portrayal of the Hamlet-esque central character was a revelation. The Czech writer Karol Kapek, who today is best known for the science fiction classic R.U.R., had this to say. His acting is impossible to describe. Two words, physical and spiritual, are the mystery behind this astonishing performance. The body may represent that mystery, may symbolize it and express it, but then comes Chekhov and proves to you that the body is the soul. For Chekhov, there is no inside. Everything is laid bare. Nothing is hidden. Everything is impulsively and sharply expressed in each movement, in the play of the entire body of this most delicate and trembling tangle of nerves. But despite these successes, the spiritualism that infused his developing pedagogy was completely out of sync with the needs of the party. Stanislavski's realism was the better vehicle for telling the stories of the proletariat, and Chekhov fell out of favor with the Stalin regime. In 1928, he fled Moscow under threat of imminent arrest. For the next seven years, he hopscotched around Europe, his famous name and former association with the MAT opening doors. He made silent films in Germany, directed and taught in Lithuania and Latvia, and was courted by various theater impresarios, including Max Reinhardt, to launch projects that might appeal to the large community of Russian expats that had migrated to Paris and other European capitals. None of that came to much of anything, except for an immensely satisfying experience directing Twelfth Night for the Israeli Habima theater troupe, which had been touring Europe. Then, a Russian-American producer, Saul Hurok, who had successfully introduced the Bolshoi Ballet to the States and specialized in all things Russian, conceived the idea of bringing an almost MAT touring company he named the Moscow Art Players to America, with Michael Chekhov headlining. It was that Hurok promoted Russian-language production of the Inspector General that took New York by storm in 1935, attracting everyone who was anyone to the majestic theater to see what all the fuss was about. That moment backstage at the Majestic, when Beatrice Strait pitched Michael Chekhov to come to England to establish his own company and training center at Dartington Hall, an offer he couldn't refuse, proved to be pivotal and was the beginning of what would come to be remembered as the most significant phase of his career. At the end of the tour, Chekhov and his wife Xenia packed up their dogs and steamed east to Devon. True to her promise, Beatrice Strait 
who, when she made the offer, was acting as a proxy for her mother, Dorothy Payne Whitney Elmhurst, established a new theater conservatory at Dartington. A medieval estate with 1,200 acres, Dartington Hall had been built in the 14th century and was almost derelict when the Elmhursts acquired it in 1925. They set about converting it into a center for progressive experimentation in agriculture, education, and the arts. Those of us who embark on the folly of founding theater companies always seem to be on the hunt for angels, really rich people who might throw us a few crumbs from their well-endowed tables. Stanislavski was the rare exception. He was an Alexeyev and already riches Croesus when he founded the Moscow Art Theater. Beatrice Strait was also an exception in that she was both a talented actor and she happened to be part of the storied and immensely rich Whitney family. That family included senators and secretaries of the Navy and top executives of Standard Oil. Ancestor Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. During the Gilded Age, they were members of the McAllister 400, a list of prominent New York families so-called because it was that number that could fit into Mrs. Astor's ballroom. The Whitney string of thoroughbred racehorses were housed in an 800-foot-long stable. When Beatrice's mother, Dorothy Payne Whitney, lost her father at the age of 17, she came into a fortune of nearly half a billion in today's dollars. At 24, Dorothy married Willard Dickerman Strait, an investment banker and U.S. diplomat, Cuba, China, with whom she had three children, including Beatrice. Willard died just seven years later, in 1918, at the age of 38, while stationed in Paris during World War I, a victim of the Spanish flu pandemic. He had been a dedicated alumnus and patron of Cornell University. When he died, Dorothy picked up the mantle of his philanthropic work at Cornell. That's where she met Leonard Elmhurst. Leonard was born into another family of privilege, though not much wealth. His father was a member of the clergy, a not particularly remunerative profession. Leonard was one of nine siblings, and both of his brothers would die in combat during World War I. Leonard enlisted but was deemed unfit. Instead, he signed up for service with the YMCA, of all things, and was posted to India, where he was moved by the deep poverty, a consequence, he believed, of failed agricultural policies. At the end of the war, he enrolled at Cornell to study agriculture. Despite his pedigree, he was nearly penniless when he arrived and worked a variety of menial jobs to pay his way. As a foreign student, he was drawn to the Cornell Cosmopolitan Club, which he learned was almost broke and in debt. His hunt for angels that might rescue the club led him to Dorothy Payne Whitney. They would marry, eventually, but not before a meeting in New York was engineered between Leonard and the world-famous Bengali poet and social reformer Rabindranath Tagore. With shoulder-length hair, long beard, and flowing robes, Tagore was the very picture of an authentic guru. But as Leonard wrote, 
This was no mystic sage, this was no gatherer of disciples, but a very human human being. The two men bonded instantly, with Tagore inviting Leonard to return to India tomorrow as his secretary. It didn't happen tomorrow, but it did happen. Together, they established an Institute for Rural Reconstruction in India with Leonard as its director. The whole thing was funded by Dorothy. Leonard returned from India, and he and Dorothy married in 1925. Building on the model of Tagore's institute, they acquired Dartington. Its crumbling medieval structures on 1,200 acres were loaded with ratchet and promise. Within 10 years, they had poured millions into renovating the property and persuaded an impressive array of intellectual scientists and artists to join them at Dartington Hall. These included Bertrand Russell, Walter Gropius, Rudolf von Laban, Aldous Huxley, Sean O'Casey, and George Bernard Shaw. It was this teeming experiment in agriculture, education, and the arts that Michael Chekhov was being asked to join. This is where another big man in the arts, another guru, enters the picture. The Elmhursts had first noticed the German choreographer Kurt Joss and his dance company in 1933 when they toured England with an explosive anti-war dance theater piece entitled The Green Table. Production stills depict a long table surrounded by bearded men in frock coats. Bob Dylan would have called them masters of war. Kurt Joss and his Green Table made a powerful anti-war statement that reverberated internationally, but it also created a problem for Joss in his native Germany. When Hitler became chancellor, Joss came under pressure to fire the Jewish members of his company. He refused. Under threat of arrest and deportation to a concentration camp, the entire company fled across the Dutch border in the nick of time. Word of their predicament came to the Elmhursts, who, true to form, invited Jos and his company to take up residency at Dartington. This had the unintended consequence of pushing out an existing dance mime program there, the one in which Beatrice had been participating. Suddenly, there was no theater program. The 18-year-old Beatrice Strait, with the support of her mother and stepfather, took it upon herself to solve this problem. She traveled to America in search of their theater man, and that's how she came to be at that fateful performance of the Inspector General in New York. We know about that backstage moment because of the reportage of a young woman named Deirdre Hurst-Dupre, who became Beatrice Strait's best friend and traveling companion, and later, Michael Chekhov's scribe. Dupre is largely responsible for the copious note-taking during the lectures given by Chekhov at Dartington Hall and Ridgefield that would eventually become the basis for his book, To the Actor. Late in life, Dupre sat for a lengthy interview with Diane Caraciolo of Adelphi University, in which she recounted how it all came to be. And there was this other company, Yost Ballet, wandering around a dance company without a home because there had 
Jewish members in their company, and they wouldn't dismiss them. They were invited to come to Dartington, and that rather pushed the little old school of dance mime, which is what I went over for, but neither Beatrice nor I had the capacity to uh, be dancers. Uh, and so we decided to uh, go to America, see what we could find out about what was going on in the theater and uh, how we could profit by it and how we could come back and bring that into the life of the theater at Dartington. They were looking for a guru. That had brought us to New York at a very lively time. It was when the group theater was going very strongly in New York. Beatrice was going uptown with Madame uh, Dekahanova and Madame Puspenskaya, uh, two Russian teachers that she was working with. When we got a, a, a message telling us to be sure to see a very great Russian actor who was going to be performing in New York. We uh, immediately made inquiries, and of course it was uh, Michael Chekhov appearing in uh, a play on Broadway with a group of Russian players. We knew nothing about him, really, uh, except through our Russian teachers, and they were very excited at the thought of seeing his work on the stage, and so we went to an opening and we were absolutely thunderstruck. It was just something absolutely we, we could never have imagined seeing acting of the kind that uh, he did that evening. And Beatrice said afterwards that this is a man we should really try to get to come to England to create the drama department there. And so... Uh, after watching him perform for several nights, we were taken backstage and we met him. People that were waiting to speak to him after his performance were on one side was uh, Beatrice in her tweed coat and her beret, and on the other side was uh, one of the members of the group theater. That would be Stella Adler. All dressed up in very fashionable clothes, and she wanted to and get him and to talk to him to check off and find out just what his plans were. Could he come and work with the group theater for a while? And Beatrice, of course, wanted to offer him the opportunity to come and create a theater at Dartington. He knew the group theater would merely make a use of him and that when they had got everything they needed, wanted from him, uh, there would be no future there. Whereas if he were able to come to Dartington Hall, where he was offered the opportunity to, to have a, a school and, and, and a theater all of his own, he would be uh, experiencing the desire of his life, which was to have just such a, a theater group to train in his method and to uh, uh, be part of a, a community uh, where he, his work would be seen and appreciated. So that's when uh, much talking went on between uh, New York and, and England, and uh, it was uh, Mr. and Mrs. Elmhurst came over from Dartington and uh, met with him, and all the plans were laid for him to come in the autumn. In fact, Chekhov accepted both offers. He gave some workshops for the group and made a lasting impression with them. For years afterward, 
Morris Karnofsky, Stella Adler, Bobby Lewis, and other group members would share with their students what they had gleaned from their encounters with Chekhov. But in the end, Dupre had it right. The Dardington offer was indeed just what Chekhov had been seeking. Some time passed. The Hurok tour continued and then wrapped up. The Elmhursts made the trip to America to confirm what their very enthusiastic 18-year-old daughter had conveyed, and arrangements were made at Dardington to bring over the Chekhovs, find them suitable accommodations, and transform a barn into a theater. In the meantime, Beatrice and Deirdre embarked on something of a grand tour to the east, with again Beatrice mainly picking up the tab. We all got back together in, uh, in England uh, in the autumn, and uh, then Beatrice and I started out on a trip to the Orient and left, left <laughs> Michael Chekhov and Xenia, his wife, they, they had got a lovely little home for themselves there, and he became, of course, a very quick student of, of English, and uh, then began planning what he would do uh, in forming the theater, interviewing people who would be interested in coming to the theater group. But this is where things got complicated. Beatrice Strait and the Elmhursts were certainly wowed by Michael Chekhov and thrilled to assemble a new company and training center that would support and build on his ideas. But when they began reaching out to the large and well-established theatrical community based in London, the reaction was less than enthusiastic. Applications were less because we started at the same time that Gilgood and uh, that group of young actors in London, their presence is being felt. So people that might have come to us from London and other parts of England tended to go rather to London because they really want to be in the heart of things. So we had serious problems surrounding the uh, number of, of uh, applicants. Yes, John Gilgood, that young up-and-comer, he and his pals Lawrence Olivier, Ralph Richardson, and Peggy Ashcroft were by that time well-established but also hungry for a new direction. They were the direct descendants and inheritors of the tradition that had run in a straight line from Shakespeare's day. But all of them were open to new paths toward a theater of the future and acting techniques that might yield more truthful performances. The year was 1935. An actor prepares the first volume detailing Stanislavski's system would not appear in print for another year. What actors in England knew about Stanislavski had come from another would-be guru named Theodor Komisarshevsky, who had been mounting productions of Anton Chekhov's plays since his arrival in London in 1919. Before Komisarshevsky, Chekhov's plays had mostly baffled British audiences who found them somewhat slack and boring. I could do a whole episode on Komisarshevsky, and I will. He's another that qualifies as a bona fide guru. But in the interest of keeping things on track, I'll just touch on some of the high points. He was by all accounts a true man of the theater, capable of doing it all, sets, costumes, lighting, as well as directing. 
He had come from another line of Russian theater royalty. His mother was an actual princess. His father, Theodore, was a famous opera singer who, by the way, was one of Stanislavsky's early acting teachers. His half-sister was Vera Komisarshevskia, yep, the one who had played Nina in the first production of The Seagull in St. Petersburg. Komis, as he came to be called, had auditioned twice to become a member of the Moscow Art Theater, but was rejected both times. That didn't stop him from publishing a book, The Actor's Work and Stanislavsky's Theory, which purported to explain the system. Stanislavsky was appalled, writing in the margins of his copy, Lie! I said exactly the opposite. He should be sued for this. Nevertheless, when Comus arrived in London in 1919, he was welcomed into a theatrical community hungry for some understanding of what was going on in Moscow. He quickly found assignments directing opera, teaching at Rada, and starting in 1925, directing the five plays of Anton Chekhov in a string of well-received productions culminating in a Three Sisters starring Gielgud and Charles Lawton. Actors responded enthusiastically to what Comus offered. His charm was legendary. His name was spoofed as Come and Seduce Me, and he opened their eyes to the possibilities of this other approach. Women especially were charmed. Peggy Ashcroft was married to him for two years, but men were not immune. Gielgud wrote, he was an enormous influence in teaching me not to act from the outside. But despite his successes in England, Comus felt unloved. His productions were popular with the public, but despite the fact that he had become a British citizen, the critics harped on his Russianness, his foreignness, especially when he deigned to direct Shakespeare. By the mid-30s, he was feeling the lure of offers from abroad, especially America. Arriving in New York, he put out a shingle for an acting studio. But by then, there were at least 10 other Russian expats competing for the same pool of potential students. He lectured at Yale, directed and wrote, but his moment as a guru was over. Today, the name Theodor Komosarshevsky is barely remembered. But let's get back to Michael Chekhov and his ambitious plan for a school and company at Dartington Hall. As Deirdre Dupre recorded, they were having trouble with their recruiting efforts. People that might have come to us from London and other parts of England tended to go instead to London, which was at the heart of things. Timing is everything, and it just so happened that in the moment Dartington Hall was putting out the word that Michael Chekhov was forming a new training center, another foreign guru, Michel Saint-Denis, was catching serious fire in London. In the competition for the attention of young actors between Michael Chekhov and Michel Saint-Denis that took place in the UK in 1935, Chekhov never had a chance. For one thing, Chekhov was just starting out. He was pitching a new experiment based on a set of half-formed ideas and theories yet to be fully tested. By contrast, Saint-Denis' company, the company Kahn's, 
was a mature ensemble that had been working together in France for the better part of a decade, which was itself built on another 10 years of experimentation and performance by the Vieux Colombier, the company founded by his uncle, Jacques Coupeau. What most people knew about Michael Chekhov was that he had been a star of the Moscow Art Theatre and a protege of Stanislavski. The London actors, already having been exposed to Comus, thought they probably already knew what that meant. They were wrong, of course. Chekhov's version of the system was radically different from the Stanislavski system, understood to center on effective memory, which Chekhov had rejected. Michel Saint-Denis represented something completely different. He had experienced the Moscow Art Theater firsthand when they brought the Cherry Orchard to Paris in 1922 and was blown away by its successful rendition of human behavior. Years later, he would write, For the first time, our classical attitude toward the theater, our efforts to bring a new reality to acting, a reality transposed from life, were confronted by a superior form of modern realism, the realism of Chekhov. He also understood its limitations, that it might not work so well when applied to the classics. Nevertheless, he wrote, if Stanislavski's system is applied literally, it leads merely to realism, but applied selectively with discrimination, it can be made the grammar of all styles. In 20 years of hard work, Coupeau and Saint-Denis were able to craft a synthesis of techniques and approaches that connected in a visceral way to the young and not-so-young actors in London experiencing their productions for the first time. In 1930, five years before the start of the Chekhov Theatre Studio at Dartington Hall, Saint-Michel's Company Cannes, which had been building on the work of Coupeau's Vieux Colombier, landed in London with a production of a play that had been written especially for the company, Noah, a theatrical telling of that most elemental fable, had been custom-made to demonstrate the strengths of the company. These were actors who had trained in mime and mask and dance, as well as language. Their performances were almost balletic, and yet Saint-Denis seems to have been successful in applying Stanislavski's grammar of all styles to the work. It was a synthesis of style and Pere Giovanni that was utterly new and utterly satisfying to this most discriminating and even jaded of audiences. They were a sensation. The company Cons was invited back and did so annually until their dissolution in 1933. Michel Saint-Denis was immediately recognized as the moving force behind the company, and he was deluged with offers to direct and to teach. By 1934, Michel Saint-Denis was being asked to form a new school with the involvement of Olivier, the London Theatre Studio. That was the beginning of a paradigm shift in actor training in the British Conservatoire. The training methods that had been incubated and then cultivated in the decades of intensive work in the Vieux Colombier and the Compagnie Cannes 
became the core of subsequent generations of training at all the major conservatories. The London Theatre Studio would last but three years. World War II would bring about its premature demise. Saint-Denis would spend the war working for the BBC, using the pseudonym Jacques Duchesne, broadcasting encouragement to the occupied French. Les habitants de Calais, les habitants de Boulogne-sur-Mer, ceux du Havre ou de Brest, ceux de Saint-Nazaire ou de Lorient, ceux d'autres villes de France encore m'écoutent en ce moment. After the war, he would found another major institution, the old Vic Theatre School. The ripples outward from the LTS and the old Vic would soon reach the other majors, Rada, Lambda, Central, Guildhall. There would be some more cross-pollination with the American method, Dorian Cannon would carry Uta Hagen's message from New York to London in the 50s, bringing an infusion of deep method immersion and emotional mining. And then, in 1968, Saint-Denis, by then nearing 70, would be invited to found yet another major training institution, the Juilliard Drama Division, alongside John Hausman and Michael Kahn. I'll need two full episodes to tell the stories of Jacques Copeau, Michel Saint-Denis, Suzanne Bing, and the Vieux Colombier. But before we get there, let's listen to my conversation with another transformative actor, Michael Cerverus. That's episode 17, and it's next on Gurus. Gurus, the story of acting, was written by me, Jeff Zinn, and is produced by Dwight Street Book Club, Rollin Jones, Adam O'Byrne, Tony Manna, and Nicholas Hassong with help from Mary Seidel. Music, editing, and mixing are by Jay Hagenbuckle. Very special thanks to Brendan Hughes. For a complete list of sources, including books, articles, and other podcasts, and a treasure trove of images, visit our website, storyofacting.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.